Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show, and thank you very much. At first I was afraid, I was petrified, kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong, and I grew strong, and I learned how to get along. So now you're back. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101. This is Matthew Aaron. And if you remember from our smart contract episode, we had some questions for smart contracts. Doesn't a smart contract take the humanity out of transactions? What happens about the implied intentions of a transaction? And can you put into code or into a smart contract ideas such as due care, due diligence, and goodwill? Our guest today, Amy Wan, asked those same questions. Amy Wan was a partner in a law firm and decided to quit her law firm to open Bootstrap Legal. And Bootstrap Legal is a company that is addressing those issues with ICO law and smart contract law. Amy Wan has been called one of the top 10 women to watch in the industry. We are honored and very privileged to have Amy Wan on here talk to us, chew the fat, if you will, about ICO and smart contract law. It's a very interesting conversation. She brings up amazing points in it. So please enjoy this conversation. But before we start this conversation, please go on to crypto101podcast.com. That's crypto101podcast.com. You can follow our social media there. You can see who we are and you can find our Patreon page. On our Patreon page, you can donate to Crypto 101. The donations there right now are helping us maintain our servers, our websites, and some of our overall costs of just keeping this podcast running. So thank you very much again for all the Patreons that are on there right now. And please come on and support Crypto 101. Enjoy the show and we will see you after. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? Welcome to Crypto 101. Thanks so much for having me. Amy, if you could, could you just please start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Amy Wan. I'm founder and CEO of Bootstrap Legal, which is a legal technology startup. I guess my story is is a little bit interesting. So I live in Southern California, out in LA, and ended up going to law school thinking I would be a human rights attorney. Well, that obviously has not happened. (laughs) Basically did a human rights internship when I was in law school and basically found out that human rights law does not cross borders. Mm -hmm. But I found out that money does, right? And so I ended up following the money for my career. When I finished law school, I concentrated on international trade. So worked for the federal government, Mm -hmm. doing WTO type stuff for a while Then when I moved back to LA, I became general counsel at a real estate crowdfunding startup. And, you know, all this ICO stuff that's happening right now really is essentially a subset of crowdfunding, right? Um, So did that for a couple of years, then was partner at a law firm, and then something happened. I just, I got to a point where I was writing the same documents over and over again. I thought, gosh, if I have to do this for the next 
30 years, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> so <laughs> I left the partnership at my law firm and started Bootstrap Legal, you know, where we are now. And the first product that we released was a product that automates the drafting of real estate, private equity fund, crowdfunding documents, syndication documents. Basically, I automated myself, right? Mm -hmm. And as we were looking into what other verticals we wanted to expand the software into, that was around the time that the SEC dropped their Dow press release that basically essentially said that ICOs are securities. And so mm -hmm. a lot of the law firms raised the price of legal representation on an ICO or an initial coin offering. Oh, wow. Suddenly there were really good margins. So I looked into automating ICO documents and ultimately ended up not doing that for a lot of different reasons, but stumbled across a huge gap in the architecture of the crypto space. And that's in smart contracts, right? And so essentially, we pivoted the company. That's what we're doing now. We are creating smart contract solutions to all of the smart contract vulnerabilities. Right on. You, know, you actually said a lot of things in there that I really want to touch <laughs> upon. And I don't... Uh, let's see. I don't even know where to start now because this oh, is gosh. first. You said ICO is a is a subset of crowdfunding. Can you explain that just a little bit more? Maybe give a one on one of what is crowdfunding and what is uh, ICO in relation. Yeah, sure. So crowdfunding is really simple. It is simply group of people pulling money together. Right. That's it. It can be online. It can actually even be offline. A lot of people when they think about crowdfunding. You know, there's different types of crowdfunding, right? So mm -hmm. when a lot of people think about crowdfunding, they think Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and that is one type of crowdfunding. We call it rewards-based crowdfunding, where I give you $5, you give me back a tweet or the first version of your widget that you're building, right? There is donation-based crowdfunding, so that's best exemplified by GoFundMe. So mm -hmm. I give you $5 to run this marathon and in return I get good happy feelings. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other category called investment crowdfunding. So I give you $5, you give me some sort of return on investment and it can be for a startup, it can be to create a widget and it can be via a token sale, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of these ICOs that um, are more properly classified as securities would fall under investment crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. The ones that are probably, you know, more so pure utility tokens or something like that, that can be rewards-based crowdfunding. So, you know, I, I see ICOs basically as a subset of this larger online capital formation thing. Under crowdfunding, and I, I, I want to really talk about uh, smart contracts here in a minute, but crowdfunding and this ICO and the regulations that are coming down on it are just like this new thing that's coming up. And a lot of people are, a lot of listeners to this show are looking at ICOs because of what they say they can do on the blockchain. When you're looking at these companies and you're looking at these ICOs and we, we they're ultimately crowdfunding, what are you seeing out of these companies? And do you think that they're just, do you think they're legit? Do you think that the SEC <laughs> should come down a little harder? How do you look at this from a lawyer's perspective? Okay, so a lot of answers uh, to a lot of questions in there. If we take a couple steps back, actually, if you look at the larger hemisphere of people raising capital, right, 
this is nothing new. Founders and entrepreneurs will always go out and exaggerate about what they're building, what they can do, right? There's a lot of actually Kickstarter scams, and there's a lot of regular startup founders out there making very bold claims. So that's not new. Now, in terms of, you know, are they liable for what they say, Mm. it kind of depends, right? So to the extent someone is doing a Kickstarter campaign and it's, you know, not a security, it's we're pre-selling a product that we haven't quite made yet, that's not governed by the SEC. That's, you know, really the jurisdiction of the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, at least in the U.S. And really what they care about is, you know, people not being fraudulent, um, making sure that there aren't unfair, deceptive trade practices, right? So you've you've seen a couple crowdfunding, like Kickstarter type campaigns where they raised a million dollars and they absconded from the U.S. and went to Switzerland and bought a French chateau and right. are hoping that they're not going to get extradited. Right. And how does that <laughs> yeah, work out it, for them? <laughs> uh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you look at investments, it is a different world, right? There are rules around what you can say when you're promising people a return on investment, aka you're selling a security. And so this area is governed by the SEC or you know a country's respective securities regulator. You cannot be making false statements. Mm-hmm. You can't make omissions either, right? So it really is a lot more strict. Here's the thing. A lot of the times, it matters who you're raising money from. You know, traditionally in startups, um, a lot of the investment has been limited to angel investors who are accredited investors. They are basically rich people who have money that they can lose. The SEC basically looks at this group of people and says, hey, these people have have money to lose. Presumably, they're more sophisticated. So, you know, we're going to be a lot more lenient there. But when a company is trying to raise money from the crowd, from non-accredited investors, so people like you or me or grandma, right, Mm -hmm. they are a lot more strict because they don't want the crowd to be deceived. Mm -hmm. So the SEC doesn't care about the merits of your idea or your business. Mm-hmm. What they care about is disclosure, that you're disclosing everything properly, right? And so when one does raise money from the crowd or non-accredited investors, they do have to be more careful in what they say. Um, if they say, oh, we have a patent pending, the attorney who's working on the deal actually has to make sure, is there a patent pending? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember once I worked on a deal where they said patent pending, and I asked for the paperwork, and it was actually a trademark, which is mm. significantly less than a patent, right? Right. Um, or I think it was like they had the license to another company's patent that was pending. And uh, I was like, mm, you can't say this, you know? Right. So you do have to be a lot more careful in what representations you make. Yeah, I understand that. That's very interesting about ICOs and the legalities. And I'm sorry to take that route off the path that we we're supposed to take, but I was just really curious. Yeah. Could we just go into smart contracts? Because I know that's the reason why we're here is to talk about smart contracts. Yeah, and you're an expert in you're the first person that I know that is just focused on smart contracts. Can you just give us a one on one what is a smart contract to start? Sure. So let's let's talk about a regular traditional written contract first, and then we can compare it to a smart contract. 
So at least under common law, which is like, you know, American and English law, a contract doesn't have to be written. Mm -hmm. It can be a napkin agreement. It can be an oral agreement. A contract is simply offer, acceptance, and consideration. Consideration means like, you know, someone is paying something, right? One dollar can be consideration. Basically, you're giving up something, okay? okay? So that's basically what a regular contract is. Now, a smart contract is basically a traditional contract, Mm -hmm. except it is in code. And because it's in code, it has a couple special features, right? So those special special features are that it is self-executing and it's immutable. So -hmm. what that means is, you know, to the extent it's immutable, you can't change it. To the extent it's self-executing, it's really just like an English contract, except it's got some execution mechanism built in, mm-hmm. right? So if what we does go that mean, back execution so, mechanism. Right. So if you go back to 1994, mm-hmm. the guy who invented the concept of smart contracts, his name was Nick Sabo. He gave a couple of examples of you know, the potential smart contracts. And what he said was, think of a vending machine, right? I Mm -hmm. put a dollar into the vending machine and I press, you know, A4. A4 is for a Coca-Cola bottle. And so it's self-executing. The Coca-Cola bottle falls down and I get my Coke. If you want to bring that one step further into, you know, the potential of smart contracts, the other example he gave was, I have a car, I want to rent it to you. Mm -hmm. We enter a smart contract under which you get to drive this car so long as you make these monthly payments. Now, if you were to default on a monthly payment, then suddenly the smart contract knows it self-executes and you are locked out of the car. So that's it. Because it's written in code, it basically is essentially a set of if-then clauses, right? Mm -hmm. If you do not pay, then you get locked out of the car. So we see that there's benefits to the smart contracts. What are some of the negatives that you can see in this? So smart contracts, the name might be a misnomer because there are ways in which these contracts are not very smart. Think about it, right? The perfect lawyer... You can't say that the perfect lawyer can sit there and write you a perfect disputeless English contract. Mm -hmm. And I don't think either that you can say that a coder can sit there and code for you a perfect errorless disputeless smart contract. So smart contracts are subject to coding errors, right? And you know how developers code. They're like, oh, fail fast and we'll iterate, right? Right. Uh, So there's coding errors, there are vulnerabilities, Basically, a decentralized fund raised, what I think, like $150 million last year. Mm. And they said code is law. All the entire agreement for this decentralized fund is like our Bible is this smart contract. And so they had all these rules, Mm -hmm. except that a hacker was able to hack the smart contract and basically drain the 50, 60 million dollars worth, you know, funds. And it's not that the hacker violated the terms of the smart contract. He didn't violate any of the if-then clauses. Mm -hmm. What he did, though, 
was he violated the intent of the contract, right? There was mm. a vulnerability. He found a loophole. And so he basically, what he basically did was he made that self, that smart contract execute multiple times simultaneously. So he was able to drain the funds. Mm. Now, in law, we have this concept called equity. Mm-hmm. Equity means fairness. Like when you enter into a contract, what did the parties intend, right? And so that's right. why we say, the DAO was a violation of the intent of the contract. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day, the truth is, and I say this as an attorney, right? We're, we're like the janitors of, of human beings. We're the ones who have to like clean up all these terrible, messy situations. Right. You know, human beings are the most creative species on planet Earth. <laughs> they, they sit there long enough. They will find a loophole, right? right. And... The truth is people change, people are fickle, but also, you know, situations change. And so right. I, I do genuinely think that people will need to modify, amend, and terminate their smart contracts. Mm-hmm. One thing I always think about with smart contracts is that fluid relationship that you have with people when it comes to making these contracts. And um, in my smart contract episode, I don't know if you listened to it, was about a conversation in a bar. And while you're getting drunk or having drinks with your business partner overnight, you are constantly amending this contract. What are some use cases that a smart contract could have that it will be very good for, opposed to some that you think that just won't work? Right. So I agree with you. I think there are there's a time and place for smart contracts. And then there are definitely situations where it doesn't make sense. I think, for example, that smart contracts are very good, for example, in supply chain, right? They offer a lot of potential. They'll be really great financial services. They also have a lot of potential in small financial microtransactions. At the same time, however, I can't sit here and pretend like I can control human behavior. Mm -hmm. One cannot say, oh, a developer is going to sit there and code very carefully and that they're only going to code smart contracts that are the best use case, right? And so my company right now is working on a smart contract solution to all these different limitations that I mentioned earlier. I can't sit there and say, well, developers won't code these smart contracts. But what I can do is at least provide a safety net because I think what technology does not count for is human nature and human behavior. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about Bootstrap Legal and how they're going to be the janitors of these problems (laughs) that are going to arise in the smart contract? And why did you make the company and where do you see the company going in the future? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I I covered the problems of smart contracts earlier, right? Coding errors, vulnerabilities, and then people change their minds. So what we're doing is we are writing SDK. You can think of it as one line of code. SDK. I would say, yes. Uh, Well, think of it. Okay, let's let's not get technical. Just think (laughs) of it as a uh, the code version of an arbitration clause, right? Mm. Um, in that it's modular, it's written in code, and you can take it and plop it into your smart contract, kind of like you can take an arbitration clause and plop it into your traditional English contract, What is right? a typical arbitration clause say? Uh, there's many different types, but basically it is an agreement on how you are going to resolve disputes. Okay. So you can say, oh, we are going to arbitrate in this venue 
we're going to have this many arbitrators, we're going to limit discovery, okay. so costs don't get out of line. It's a procedure on how you resolve disputes. Okay, okay I understand. You plop this one line of code into your smart contract. To the extent the smart contract is executing the way everyone intends, that's fine. Like, no one cares. But if it starts executing in a way that the parties do not intend, then you can trigger that code and it essentially acts like a freeze button, right? It freezes execution of the smart contract. Then it kicks the entire thing into a dispute resolution marketplace. Mm -hmm. And I can get into in a second why we're not a dispute resolution service provider. Mm -hmm. But then for a lot of logistical and cultural reasons, the entire thing sits on a borderless digital jurisdiction. And the reason why is because there's so many logistical hurdles, right? Like, for example, in the U.S., if you have a dispute with another party about your contract, you have to go to court, file a complaint, and serve it to the other person that you have a dispute with. Right. Smart contracts are very often done pseudonymously. That means you don't know the identity of the other party. If you don't know who the other party is, how are you going to serve them with the complaint? You don't even have access to the traditional court system. Right. And even if you can get across all of those logistical hurdles, mm. you know, have fun explaining to your lawyer, a judge, and a jury, right. all of whom think that anything Bitcoin or blockchain related is inherently fraudulent or illegal, <laughs> have fun explaining your smart contract to them. Oh, by the way, they can't read it because right. it's in code and less than huh. 1% of the population can actually read code. So Very now you point. have to go hire an expert witness to interpret the contract for the judge and the jury. There's just there's so many problems. So we are basically creating um, a private jurisdiction that is crypto community friendly by the crypto community for the crypto community. And it's meant to bring the dispute resolution process on chain. What we're trying to get at here is this. Um, today, smart contracts are still so vulnerable. I remember over the summer on my social media channel, right? You would see all these ICOs coming out and in the first 15 minutes, they would get hacked two to $3 million and the mm. founder would sit there and shrug their shoulders and be like, oh, well, sorry, there's nothing that we can do about it because it's immutable. That doesn't happen in the real world. If you lose $3 million in the real world, you get sued. <laughs> right, yes. Um, so what we're trying to do here is I, I honestly believe that smart contracts will not gain in adoption unless and until you can help users achieve transactional confidence. Mm -hmm. If they're entering into a smart contract and they don't know what the end result is going to be, they're playing roulette, right? No business person in their right mind is going to transact not knowing what the outcome is going to be. If you can ensure transactional confidence in the outcome, then people will start using smart contracts a lot more to actually transact. Mm -hmm. Do you see a future where the average person will be sitting around writing smart contracts? Mm, I or think you, that's very difficult because most people don't actually know how to code. I was always mm -hmm. envisioning a sort of like, you remember MySpace yeah. and how you wanted to pimp your page and you would take HTML code and say if you wanted it purple, you would cut and copy your HTML code into your MySpace and then it turned turn it purple. Yes. Do you think that 
smart contracts in the future could be like that where I'm just sitting here and I want to make a contract with my brother because he brought a thousand bucks and I copy and paste this smart contract code and make these contracts that are held up in, in a court of law? So there are smart contract template companies out there today that are oh, basically, are. yeah, they're writing smart contract templates for people to use. Mm. The only issue I see is that you have to go back and kind of look at, okay, well, what happened when we created legal, you know, traditional contract templates, right? So you go look at a company like LegalZoom, for example, or today, quite frankly, you can go and probably Google any template of, you know, any common contract that you want, right? And you'll probably get like hundreds of hits on Google. The problem is not the template. The problem is that the templates don't often say what the parties actually intend, right? Sometimes you have to change the template to actually fit your particular circumstance. So, you know, if I am a marketing When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply service provider, right? Mm -hmm. I'm taking this template off of Google and repurposing it for my use. If I did that with a smart contract, I'd just be copying the code. But what if the template says, okay, I will invoice you in 30 days and you pay 30 days. And after that, it's a, I don't know, 5% late fee, Mm -hmm. but you actually want to be paid up front. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? I'm sure people can come up with modular solutions. We're not. I, I don't think we're quite there yet. But we, but we could be maybe in the future. We could be. I, I think that people will still need to hire instead of lawyers, maybe developers, to sit there and modify their smart wow. contracts for them because they will need to adapt it to their use, especially if it's self-executing and immutable. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, that's so if it interesting. Doesn't, yeah. If it doesn't actually reflect your intent, you're kind of screwed. It seems almost like coding and, and, and development is going to be the, the new English, the international language that if you're a lawyer, you better know how to code. You know, it's so funny. I I saw someone post on the on social media the other day. They were like, you know, you used to hire an attorney and pay them a lot of money to find a loophole in a contract. Now you hire a developer and pay them a lot of money to see if they can hack a smart contract. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's true. I was just talking to uh, Joy Krug of Augur, and he's doing the same thing right now in testing Augur. He's like, I just hired a lot of developers, and they're just sitting around trying to hack my, my platform. But so here's the thing, right? And you, you often see this in traditional law as well. Um, sometimes you can't predict everything that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the truth is doing that would be like if I'm an attorney and I write a traditional contract and I give it to 10 other attorneys to review, still doesn't mean there's never going to be a lawsuit, right? Right. Um, if you 
hire a lot of, you know, if, even if you do security audits and bug bounties, that only shows you the presence of bugs, but it doesn't guarantee you the absence of bugs. Right. With this conversation, there's a lot of companies involved now. Like, so you have a company and I don't take this the wrong way, but you have a company. There's companies making smart contracts. There's companies making platforms that we can make smart contracts. But this whole blockchain movement is about P2P. <laughs> but now it seems that we have P2 company to company to company to P. And it's the same as before. Are we getting out of the spirit or is it just inevitable that there has to be people in the middle? Look, that's a great question. I don't think we are trying to be middlemen at all. But here's the thing. The and not you in general. This is definitely not an attack against you. Oh, or, no, no, you know, no. Just Look, a general question. Yeah. question a lot, right? Oh, okay. Um, I, you know, I, I think there are a lot of technologists and developers out there who are enamored with technology and think that it can solve all of the world's ills. But the truth is that human nature is so fickle and unpredictable that it, it's really, truly hard. Let me give you an example. You know, I, I told you in the very beginning of this podcast that Nick Sabo, one of his, you know, he, he's done incredible work, right? One of his seminal examples was the car rental example. Right. You know, if you look at that, you might think, wait, this is like a great idea. Like, I don't have to do collections anymore. It's so easy for me to rent out my car, Right. Except I come from a world where we have to clean up everyone else's messes. Mm -hmm. So when you tell me about an example like that, my question is, hmm, okay, so where I'm coming from and what I see people do, if someone is renting this car and they know they're not going to be able to make the next monthly payment because maybe they're out of money, maybe they lost a job, whatever – they're going to vandalize the inside of the car. Mm. Or when they get locked out, they're going to vandalize the outside of the car. Mm. Or what if their credit card expired? They weren't trying to default, but you locked them out of the car anyways, and now they're angry. Or what happens if they lost their job, they can't pay, the smart contract's going to self-execute, but guess what? We're in the middle of a great recession. Everybody has lost their jobs this is a luxury vehicle. I can't rent it out to anyone else. So I'm not going to be able to make money in this market. I would rather that renter keep the car, maintain it, hopefully owe me back payments. Hopefully one day I will be able to collect some money for renting out this car rather than none. Right? So I don't want that smart contract to self-execute. I was talking to a supply chain, like blockchain project yesterday and you know they were like what is the use case where do you see what you guys are building come into the equation and you know there's there's so many things that you can't predict right like let's say you have something being shipped from asia to you know port of long beach in los angeles that's one of the largest ports in the u.s right mm. well guess what the Union workers, the port workers are on strike and the boats are just sitting there in the harbor and they can't get the port. So you actually end up diverting the ship to another port. 
or something like that, right? right. Like you don't know that workers are going to go on strike or right. let's say you're shipping some you're shipping fabric from Asia to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. The ship sinks or Hawaii there's another volcanic er- eruption and Hawaii no longer exists. What oh, happens oh, oh. because not only do you have that smart contract, <laughs> you've got the smart contract from the fabric guy to guy in Italy who's going to turn these into suits. And then there's a smart contract from, you know, the clothing maker to the department store. What happens down the chain, right? You're you're going to need something when something in the system fails. Right. I lived in Hawaii. I'm a graduate of University of Hawaii. Please, no volcanoes in Hawaii. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the the human aspect of these contracts, and I think that that's so interesting because you cannot take humanity out of this situation. It's not even about the guy not paying his payment on the car and locking him out. It's about what if his kid is sick and he needs to get the kid to the hospital. It's like yeah. these situations that could be so robotic that it takes the humanity out of the situation. But with that said, it's also very cultural. And I'm wondering how the smart contracts are going to deal with the cultural aspect as well. Like the humanity aspect, we and you agree, you, it's impossible to take that out. But what about the cultural? Because the values that the Americans have about locking that person out of the car and say somebody in China might be totally different. I think those are things that as developers writing these smart contracts, they're going to have to take that into account. The interesting thing is, yes, like there are cultural differences in every country At the same time, the crypto industry, I feel like there's this very interesting phenomenon going on. It's almost the acceleration of globalization, right? Mm. I don't think I've ever worked in an industry before where it was truly so global. Like I remember um, a couple weeks ago, we were starting to put out our product. We were taking our calls and then Thanksgiving hit. Mm. Even though it was Thanksgiving in the U.S., I st- I forgot to block out my calendar on, you know, that Thursday of Thanksgiving. And people scheduled calls with me on that Thursday because they were calling from other parts of the globe, right? right? Yeah, um, exactly. This week, I had, to, I had to stay up late and take a call, two calls from Australia. Right. And then I get, get up early in the morning to talk to someone in Europe. Like, it is, <laughs> you know... Crypto is a very, very global thing. Right. Um, and I think that's that's very interesting because I think that's kind of where our borderless jurisdiction comes in, right? Like we're not here to, for example, assign cultural values or supersede the patchwork of local laws and regulations. But at the same time, I believe that if businesses want to do business, there does need to be some sort of framework or baseline of rules that everyone agrees to so that we can all have predictability in whatever we're transacting, right? And business is a very, very global thing. If I give you $50 and you're supposed to give me 50 of whatever, I expect you to deliver and you probably expect me to send you that $50. It sounds like with this globalization that we keep talking countries, we say, you know, cultural, there is cultural aspects, there's human human aspects, and we keep saying China, the United States, from Asia, <laughs> from Europe, and these things. Is cryptocurrency and people like you that's thinking outside of jurisdictions going to make its own jurisdiction, the global law, the blockchain law, are we going to just start cutting countries out 
I don't think you can cut countries out, but I do think that in the past one to two decades, in general, regardless of crypto, right, you have seen kind of an erosion in the power of nation states or sovereignties. I mean, just look through history, right? In, you know, a couple hundred years ago, nation states didn't have that much power. A lot of it was in religious centers, the Catholic church, this church, that church, right? Mm. Nowadays, it's been nation states in the past two decades. You've seen these non-nation states rise to power, right? Groups like ISIS um, or Al-Qaeda, you know, they are very powerful, especially in some sort of like region, but they're not actually recognized as a country, right? Mm -hmm. Look at the United Nations. Uh, Presumably, they should have some influence or power, but they're an organization. They're not a nation state. So things have become increasingly interesting, I think, over the past couple decades, especially with the the rise of the internet. Talking about your company, Bootstrap Legal, where are you guys today? And what is the future of Bootstrap? Yeah, sure. So, you know, as we're seeing an increasing number of these ICOs and these blockchain projects with ecosystems that rely on smart contracts, we are actively building out our infrastructure So actually in early 2018, we're gonna launch the corner piece of our solution, which is a smart contract notification system, right? Mm -hmm. So the same way that banks and credit reporting companies and credit cards will email or text you if there's unusual activity on your account, Mm -hmm. we do that with your smart contract to the extent that there's unusual activity with your smart contract, right? Because the first step in every problem is just knowing what's happening right and we will be building out the rest of the solution over 2018 we are actually forming partnerships right now with these blockchain projects that are utilizing smart contracts so that they actually can convince all the vendors in their network to come on to their blockchain system i Mm -hmm. i think our our solution gives their vendors a bit more confidence basically provides them with you know that safety net you just mentioned blockchain companies with their smart contracts which blockchain companies do you think have the best future for smart contracts neo ethereum quantum (laughs) well um if you look at a lot of the different protocols some of them do support smart contracts others do not Um, Ethereum is definitely one of those blockchains where they have a very active um, developer ecosystem. People are actually making use of it. Like a lot of ICOs, for example, are done on the Ethereum blockchain. So, you know, that's one place um, where I think it's very vibrant, especially with like Solidity smart contracts, right? At the same time, I like to look at verticals. And so if we look at what verticals would be interesting for smart contracts definitely supply chain i think Mm -hmm. in certain areas of financial services this may be interesting as well insure tech is another area that i i think smart contracts have a lot of potential in but i don't think a lot of the insurance companies yet have become totally comfortable with the idea of this self-executing thing
just a general question. What do you what do you think of the market these days? Bitcoin just hit, you know, 19,500. I don't know if you're a Bitcoin <laughs> holder, but what, what what do you think of just I the market? I do hold Bitcoin. Oh, please don't tell me you've been so holding funny. since 2009, please. Uh, I I first bought it in 2013, but I would Ooh, say apparently not nearly enough, right? <laughs> never early enough. Unless you're Satoshi, so, it's never early enough. It's it's funny that you're asking me because my cousin from Taiwan Facebook messaged me this morning and it was like, hey, do you think I should buy Bitcoin right now? And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> I don't want to be giving investment advice. I, I'll say this, though. Um, at least at the time we're talking today, like Bitcoin is very volatile. It is very high. I still think it can go higher, but I also wouldn't necessarily be so surprised if there were a, a drop of correction, although I, I think it will keep going higher. I think now is a good time to get into altcoins, right? Like mm. Bitcoin has swallowed up so much. Ethereum is suffering from crypto kitties. Right. <laughs> and right. so I think right now, you know, Ethereum, Litecoin, some of the other altcoins, all the headlines have been on Bitcoin lately. So, so I like to do what everyone else isn't doing. Right now, I'd be looking at altcoins. Right on, right on. What altcoins would you be looking at? I have a little bit of Ethereum and Litecoin as well. I okay. heard from my friends down the hall that Litecoin is apparently up 30% today. I don't know. I haven't checked. Oh, it's, um, it's looking nice. I'm currently looking to EOS, Stellar, mm -hmm. and, a, and a couple other ones. Uh, sometimes my CTO and I get into these conversations, right? Like I'm looking at IOTA right now, and he is so passionate so passionately against IOTA because he keeps saying like oh, your wow. tech fundamentally does not work, which is really interesting because that's the first right I heard now, that one. Yeah, right now it's very hyped up, so it, it's interesting. Um, I, I I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> I don't. I think that you're in the same boat with everybody. It's just going crazy. We don't know what to make of it, and we're trying to I guess collectively get our thoughts together about it. I'm in a lot of the Facebook crypto groups and everyone is throwing out these recommendations. A lot of them are baseless. They're based right. purely on speculation. You don't really have anything to back it up. So it's it's a lot of noise right now. And, and I don't think anyone really knows what's going on except for maybe the actual market makers. Well, you're not in the Crypto 101 group. We would welcome you there. Oh, I didn't know you had a Facebook group. I guess I'm going to have to join after this call. <laughs> yes, please, please. I am worried that everybody's going to know that you were an, a, you're a lawyer and an attorney, that you're going to get very, very, like so many questions. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you're, you're going to get bombarded. <laughs> um, who's one person that you look up to in the space? That's an interesting question. I kind of um, think I know your answer, though. So this is interesting. I actually co-hosted a show this week for icoinvestor.tv okay. and we had a guest on the show they just finished their ico it was one of the co-founders of blockstack and you know listening to them talk about what they're building they're basically building like a decentralized internet hmm. um and listening to his vision and his take on it and how they structured their deal you know granted i don't know him very well but I was actually very impressed with how well thought out, how careful, how coherent he seemed to be. So currently, I'm kind of mooning over him. <laughs> right, cool. That's really cool. 
if you could send us a link to your talk and to uh, him, maybe, and we put it in the description so everybody else can find that information. That'd be amazing. Would you? I really thought you were going to say Nick Zabo, though. <laughs> I, um, I think Nick Zabo has contributed greatly to the space. At the same time, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm not actually sure that he would like what we're building. You know, Nick Savo has a very ardent philosophy of no centralized third parties, right? And um, in some ways you might consider us that, but, you know, it's not that we want to be a third party. We just see a need. the necessity and the need. Right. Yeah. What general advice would you give to people in the crypto space? If somebody, oh, this is Crypto I mean, 101, if somebody was coming in now and this is their first podcast they listen to, and they heard Amy Wan talk about smart contracts and what she's doing and this company that she's building, what would you tell them? You know, I would say that the potential of blockchain is so great. I often hear people saying, oh, this is like the next big thing. It's, it's the next internet. It is the next great gift to humanity. At the same time, I have found that there are so few people who really truly understand this stuff and that a lot of people are kind of like being sheeps, right? They hear something and they don't fully understand or comprehend it and they just follow along. So my advice would be think for yourself and be very critical, right? Like it is a difficult space to understand, but at the same time, what I fear is that if people are not being critical enough and thinking through everything they're hearing that they might end up losing a lot of money. Hmm. Very good advice. On Crypto 101, we use the analogy. The crypto space is like five-year-olds playing soccer. (laughs) One of the kids kicked the ball, all of them running that way for the ball. One kicks the ball the other way, all of them running for the other ball. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is there's a lot of crazy stuff going on today in the ICO industry. As much as many of the original like crypto anarchists and such say, oh, regulations should not apply to us, there is a reason why we have the Securities Act of 1933, right? Mm -hmm. That came after the Great Depression, after people were doing crazy things with investments. Do you have an example of one of those crazy things? I Sorry sorry to interrupt, but it seems, I wonder if there's any parallels between that and now. There absolutely are, right? There were no standards for being listed on exchange. Any company (laughs) could go sell their stock. Everyone was buying stock, right? And people were borrowing a lot of money to go buy stock because it was just going up and up and up. You should only invest money that you can stand to lose. Please do not mortgage your house or take out a loan to invest in this space. Because, you know... It's um, if too many people do that, that's going that's going to put a large number of the population in an economic space that policymakers will not want them to be in in case this is a bubble that explodes. Right. Very good insights. We actually have on Crypto 101 Facebook group somebody asking, should I sell my truck to buy Bitcoin? And he made a poll. No. (laughs) If that's your only truck, no. (laughs) I have one last question for you today. 
But before that question, Amy, I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. I would hope that you come back on the show and talk to us more about the legalities of this space because this was a overall talking about your company, talking about um, smart contracts and ICOs, but you're brilliant. And I think that you can help a lot of people out try to navigate through the space. Oh, thank you. I would love to come back on the show. I don't, I don't mean to flatter. I, I apologize. <laughs> but the last question of the show, as always, what three songs would you like with your interview? Oh, man. Um, whenever I go karaoke, my one go-to is I Will Survive. And, you know, I am a, a child of the 80s. And in February, I'm going to go watch the Backstreet Boys in Vegas. So no. it's got to be a Backstreet Boys song. <laughs> are you serious? The ba- they're still performing. They are, you know, performing for a while in Vegas. No shit. Right on. You had the posters on your wall, didn't you? Oh, man. My girlfriends that I'm going with, I'm sure they did. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Amy, thank you again for coming on the show, and good luck with Bootstrap Legal. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. The music today was Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive, Backstreet Boys, Shape of Your Heart, and Diana Ross, I'm Coming Out. And I love the Diana Ross song. It's one of my favorite songs, like the intro, the whole thing, so much high energy. It just says, I'm going to do this. And you know what? I think Bootstrap Legal is going to make an amazing company for smart contracts. So they're coming out. Links are in the description. Remember, the songs were picked by today's guests. Come to Crypto101Podcast.com. Check us out. Hop on our Facebook group. Lots of good people there to help you out, uh, ask questions, and join the community. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next episode of Crypto 101. This is Matthew Aaron. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.